This podcast originally aired in 2013. This is the Nature Pastcast, each month raiding Nature's archive and looking at key moments in science. In this show, we rewind to Victorian London to hear about the very first issue of Nature. Nature, a weekly illustrated journal of science. 4th November 1869. Price, four pence. I find nature interesting because it is now such an iconic journal. And I think it was not at all iconic in its starting. Nature was initially intended quite differently from the publication it became. The people who started it had great ambitions, but they didn't foresee what science would become. To the solid ground of nature trusts the mind which builds for I. Wordsworth. I'm Ruth Barton. And I'm a historian of science. My uh, major area of interest is science in Victorian England. Nature was published in London on the 4th of November, 1869. Someone who went back to look at nature, I think, would be surprised because it is so different. There is so little reporting of the latest research. It's more trying to keep trying to keep scientific men broadly informed and trying to keep a wider audience interested in science in order to persuade them that science is something that they should support and be enthusiastic about. Nature had a very clear agenda at the beginning and they actually had a statement. First, to place before the general public the grand results... It is intended, first, to place before the general public the grand results of scientific work and scientific discovery, and, secondly, to aid scientific men themselves by giving early information of all advances made in any branch of natural knowledge throughout the world. My name is Melinda Baldwin. I'm a historian of science, and I'm working on a book project about the history of nature. So the first editor and founder of nature was an astronomer named uh, J. Norman Lockyer. So Lockyer had this idea that he would start a journal that would contain both uh, articles for laymen, sort of talking about uh, recent advances in science in a way that anyone could understand, and then there would also be more technical pieces and reports from foreign scientific societies, abstracts from other journals, the kind of material that a researcher would have found useful. So in the very first issue, you really see that contrast, sort of Lockyer trying to reach these two audiences. The very first piece in Nature um, is not an experimental article. It's not even one of the famous leading editorials. It's a translation of some work by the uh, by Goethe, the German poet. Nature. We are surrounded and embraced by her, powerless to separate ourselves from her and powerless to penetrate beyond her. Without asking or warning, she snatches us up into her circling dance and whirls us on until we are tired and drop from her arms. We live in her midst and know her not. She is incessantly speaking to us, but betrays not her secret. We constantly act upon her, 
and yet have no power over her. Goethe, Aphorisms on Nature, translated by T.H. Huxley. T.H. Huxley was an eminent biologist. He was one of the many scientists who supported nature. Huxley was very clever, very energetic, and almost anybody wanted Huxley to be supporting their project because Huxley would help something to succeed. When my friend, the editor of Nature, asked me to write an opening article for his first number, there came into my mind this wonderful rhapsody on nature. It seemed to me that no more fitting preface could be put before a journal. And this is how nature opens. You know, not with science necessarily, but with literature, with an appeal to the highly cultured uh, British reader, you know, saying that the investigation of nature is just as important to your, the cultivation of your intellect as poetry or as classics, uh, trying to elevate science to the level that literature, philosophy, um, the more traditional disciplines would have had at the time in Britain. The original masthead of nature portrays the globe uh, sort of shrouded in clouds. It's a very mysterious picture of the earth and superimposed over that is the word nature in kind of this gothic font. The letters look a bit like bent twigs and it's very uneven, natural kind of lettering. And aesthetically, it seems to be invoking romanticism early 20th century intellectual movement that uh, placed a lot of emphasis on sort of the mystery and power and beauty of the natural world. Blackyear and Huxley were really taken with romantic philosophy and with romantic views on nature. And, and the fact that the issue opens with aphorisms by Goethe certainly suggests romantic influence because Goethe is one of the most important romantic poets. Nature. R. Clay, Sons and Taylor. Printers. Bread Street Hill, London. London was the publishing centre for England. Masses of publishers were located in London. And Nature was far from being the first scientific magazine. It's part of a publishing boom. There were hundreds of new magazines and journals started in the 1860s. Initially, it's quarterly magazines, then it's monthlies. But in the 1860s, weeklies become popular. It's partly a matter of taxation changes. In the 1850s and 60s, taxes had been reduced on all sorts of things to do with printing and publishing. Nature was one of these weeklies I think nature is different from the others in that Macmillan, who published it, was a science publisher and he put a lot of effort into getting support from the leading scientific men of the time. I don't think its content was any more interesting. If I'd been one of the general public, I think I might have found one of the other magazines more interesting. It was published on a fairly cheap paper, no colour of course, 
the first issue was 22 pages long as we currently see it. But I think it had eight pages of advertisements on the front. Hardwick's plain and easy books for natural history students. A library in itself, Chambers Encyclopedia, a dictionary of universal knowledge for the people. There's lots of books advertised, textbooks sometimes, and um, things like microscopes. They're very keen on microscope advertisements. So the sort of things that scientific readers might be persuaded to buy or that more cultured readers might be persuaded to buy. William Ladd manufactures scientific instruments of every description, including microscopes, telescopes, spectroscopes, inductoriums, and all instruments for philosophical research. Science was becoming of enormous practical importance in the 1860s. At the same time, there were controversial theories such as Darwin's theory, and there was an enormous campaign for science education in schools, there were campaigns to try and make the old universities have more science. There were campaigns for education for women, especially medical education for women. And there's a small piece in the first issue of Nature. Page 25. Notes. The female physicians question, thanks to Professor Masson, has made a great stride during the past week. Ladies are to be admitted to study medicine at Edinburgh University. So, uh, unfortunately for Lockyer and Huxley, um, nature was not immediately popular with the desired lay readership. There is a letter from Macmillan to Lockyer about 1871 saying he's very worried about nature and how it ought to be changed to attract more people. My dear Lockyer, above all, I am very anxious about nature. I cannot help feeling that a very little more of something would make it a success, and if so, of course it would be a permanent benefit to you. I have been thinking of many things. At present, we are endeavouring to get it more widely taken at schools, and if we succeed in this, we'll go into some other line. What nature had was Macmillan was willing to put money into it. The journals that were published in the decade before Nature and continued to compete with it, some of them were total failures and only lasted two weeks or two months. Nature ran at a loss until the 1890s. And all these enterprises were commercial enterprises and very few publishers had the deep pockets or the willingness to pay for something that wasn't making a profit. So I think it's partly Macmillan being willing to support it while it ran at a loss. And it's partly that it has the support of eminent people and therefore it tends to draw support away from some of the other magazines that were, I think, quite interesting. But I also think if it lasts that long, it has to change as times change. And so it changed. It was a very different magazine by, by 1875. What happened 
was that Lockyer was determined that everything in the journal was going to be written by researchers. But what Lockyer found was that the people that he wanted to write for Nature were much more interested in talking to each other than they were in talking to the public. And so very quickly, by, by I would say about 1875, Nature had reinvented itself as a weekly magazine by and for scientific researchers. And I don't think that this was Lockyer's intent. I think that this was something that happened because the contributors saw nature as useful in ways that Lockyer maybe hadn't initially envisioned it. And so really it was a contributor takeover almost, not a hostile takeover, but Lockyer suddenly found that everything that was being sent to the nature offices was much more specialized than he had hoped for. When another half-century has passed, curious readers of the back numbers of nature will probably look on our best, not without a smile, long after the theories of the philosophers whose achievements are recorded in these pages are obsolete, the vision of the poet will remain as a truthful and efficient symbol of the wonder and the mystery of nature. been listening to the Nature Pastcast. This month's story was told by historians Melinda Baldwin and Ruth Barton, and it was produced by Charlotte Stoddart. Next time, the early days of the very small world of quantum physics.